So, Frontios is once again safe. I wonder if we'll stay out of adventure, or rather, trouble for a while. Trouble does seem to follow us around, Doctor. Really, Tolo? Must you continue to speak in such a sinister manner? It's been some time since you were under the influence of the Black Guardian. There's a slower pace of life on Alzarius. This is the way my people speak. I prefer peace and quiet in the TARDIS. Now where is it? What are you looking for, Doctor? The inanimate object which used to sit in the corner. Missa? We dropped her off on Terminus. There's no need for sarcasm, Turlo. I was referring to the hat stand. What on earth is that high-pitched whining? I don't know, Doctor. Is Tegan back in this console room? There's no need for sarcasm, Turlo. Right, settle down now. I think we're experiencing a gravity bounce. Well, what's a gravity bounce? Oh, I suppose it's a, a little like Tegan forgetting to put a bra on. I have a problem with sarcasm, Doctor. You'll be the one gravity bouncing out of the TARDIS when I tell her what you just said. This is K9. Please listen to Doctor Who on target. That is correct. Welcome to Doctor Who on Target podcast. This week we are reviewing Doctor Who Frontios by Christopher H. Bidmead and the audiobook version also read by Christopher H. Bidmead. Hello from Michael in Swansea. Hello and this is Greg from Swansea. And hello from Alex in Exeter. To me, it's the definition of a very slow burner. It starts off at a tremendously dull pace to be honest with you. Um, I think it gets a lot better towards the end, full of technical jargon, which is a big sort of mainstay of Chris Bidmead's writing, particularly when you look at the TV stories Legopolis and Castrovalva. I did really enjoy the tension towards the end of it. That's my say for now. I'll, I'll come back to other themes soon enough. Alex, could you give us a quick teaser of what you thought of it? A bit like Mike's. I thought it was quite long-winded and dull to begin with, and it slowly, slowly picked up. I think it took, like, it was annoying me because it took, like, Chapter to about chapter six, eight to get to the point, and though it had very good characters and it's got good action, it just sort of didn't go as fast a pace I think we're used to, and it needed a bit of tidying up. I thought that's really interesting, actually, because I mean I don't know if we can all say what did you see this on first broadcast, Alex? No, I've never actually seen Frontos, so that's why I I wonder does it work better as a TV drama? I won't watch them while we're reviewing. I have gone back and watched them after we've done the final edited podcast. I've watched Pyramids and Mars. I've watched Carnival of Monsters. I'll probably watch Frontios now once this final edit is out. But um, I do remember loving it when I was six or seven. Your certain concepts. I mean, I've written down here, said I found this story quite an intense read to begin with. The reader is put straight into a pretty much chaotic adventure, chaotic planet they land on. Different levels of society and militariness as we've seen in various Doctor Who Target books already. Um, But also some brilliant innovative concepts. I'll discuss more of those uh, later on. To answer your question, Al, I did... I did thoroughly enjoy it as a youngster. Uh, and if I can come in with that one as well, Alex, yeah. I, yeah. I, I saw it on original transmission, and I loved it. 
it was re it was really exciting the thing was it was very different to many of the peter davison ones then it was dark and brooding and i noticed mike used the word intense and it did come across as intense i remember you know the first reveal of the um the tractators i thought they they, they were great i thought they, they looked great so i thoroughly enjoyed it so i was really looking forward to this because I'd never read the Target novel, you see. Yes, well, I mean, it was broadcast and I think was six or seven I was, seven, six or seven years of age. And yeah. yeah, I love the concept of the Gravis then. It's debatable whether it looks good now, but I just remember, mm -hmm. as Greg said, pretty much for my sort of young brain at the time, it being quite different. Yeah. Do you ever think well, this is, before? this is Possibly the thing. There's a bit of I horror really coming in there, the body horror coming I really, in there. I really like the Abertil. I like Castaway. I like the Gopolis. I think they're brilliant things. But I read this, and I did find there was bit there was bits of menace with the Tractators, but I just didn't think they came over very well. Yeah, I mean, Greg sort of mentioned to me earlier on, Al, about... Um, you've just mentioned the two previous Bidmead stories, Legopolis and Castrovalva. And they're sort of very, they're seen to Doctor Who fandom as very sort of mathematically conceptual, aren't they? And very sort of intense in that respect. And Greg spoke to another friend, hello, Michael in Norfolk. And um, he actually said that, you know, a lot of Doctor Who fans did like that sort of, yeah. we call it sort of maybe maths geekery, I don't know. But um, they like well, they, they, they has, the idea of the intense physics behind it. Series, hasn't there? I'm saying, well, there has been sort of sort of dripping little bits of math still into Doctor Who. Like there's been bits in the new series where it's still really important. And I think in Logopolis it comes over really well as bits I like from that. What I just thought with this, it there wasn't enough to keep you going. That's the problem I felt with this. Interesting, Al, because to me it's a total tonal shift from those two. I mean, I think I did, I wouldn't have liked it if it had been as mathematically complex as the two we mentioned, Legopolis and Castrovalva were, I yeah. wouldn't have liked it as a seven-year-old. No. But because of the way the intensity builds up, the excitement, I think it's it's a change of direction for Bidmead at that time, and that's why I enjoyed it then, and I, I wouldn't have enjoyed reading this book as a seven-year-old. It would have been too complex for me. I think compared to what we've read, did, what we've did read you in the both past. read it? Did you both read it as one thing, or did you read it in bit by bit? Like I, that's what I've been doing because it just seems too much as one thing. It was in bits for me, really. But um, as I was just going on, yeah, I wouldn't have enjoyed it necessarily as a youngster, possibly as an older teenager. But now I did sort of, I did really quite enjoy it yeah. as an adult uh, reading it. If, I don't know if you've noticed, but I'm holding back a minute. I'm holding no, back. No, you let it all out, Greg. Here is the place to let it out. <laughs> well, first of all, I mean, could I could I say the story? This is going to be quite a heavy criticism, I have to tell you. Um, I didn't like Frontios at all. Not at all. I, I actually, um, I think the big problem is, you know, you're talking about the, the Legopolis and Castrovalva and they're quite, as you say, scientific and intense in that aspect. But what I didn't like... Are you going to say about the comedy bit? Because I thought it was so dry. Oh, which comedy bit? Hold on. No comedy in it. No sort of, oh. like you get... Get with the doctor normally. Sorry, I wasn't being sarcastic there. I thought you genuinely... No, there wasn't, was there? There was hardly any comedy whatsoever. There was nothing... It's slow, laborious. And this language which um, Bidmead uses, I, I found really perplexing. There was no drama there. That, that's what I felt all the way through. Things that should have been dramatic and exciting were just dull and boring and... It just there was there was nothing there. There was nothing to make you want to turn the page, if you like. No, that's that's fair enough, Greg. I mean, 
Certain concepts, I wanted to mention the chapter titles, like The Power mm. of the Hat Stand. Yeah. As we've mentioned before, Doctor Who takes something so basic, and we could something we could recognise every day, and gives it this sort of magical, forceful quality. And yeah. you know, obviously, you yeah. know in the terms of the story itself, the hat stand is important. But he does have, he does sort of give these chapters dramatic titles, like The Power of the Hat Stand and Greed Sets the Trap. Yeah, that's that's true, actually. But they, what yeah, you said yeah. about hum, humour, I'm just I'm getting a sense that Alec was talking about how dry it was. The way he sort of we've listened to the audio version as well, read by Christopher H. Bidmead, and it's almost sort of Monty Python esque to me. I don't know on that one, Mike, because I, I we discussed the audio book in a bit, but I I, I just didn't think I thought the, yeah I agree with you. The titles are quite dramatic. When you got Indri's sort of chapter, they sort of didn't live up to the title. And it was oh, like, that's true. Yes, that's, that's probably yeah. what I was getting at, Alex. Sorry, sorry. He's got my thunder again. Alex has got my yeah, thunder. yeah, no, yeah. yeah. I didn't. Now I sort of think about it like that. Yeah, because that, that's sorry, <laughs> I, I called out there, but you're absolutely spot on there, um, Alex, and you you were leading into it, Mike. You? Yeah, yeah. The power of the hat stand, and you get that. But I was, I felt like shouting out when you said that. What power? What happened? What what does it do? It doesn't have a power, does it really? It sort of does and it doesn't. I sort of mean it's just an item. What they put the you know, hats and coats on. But it has that sort of making the sort of deity thing with them, isn't it? They think it's a god or token. Yeah, and it's sort of evidence that the TARDIS is still is still out there, you know. Well, the, I mean, you have a little bit of residual electricity power left in it. To me, what comes across as maybe a large static electric charge something like that but it's depleted within a few shots isn't it and then it, it's now dead yeah. it's just a hat stand now but they, yes they use that to frighten the people because they think they could do it again but power of the hat stand I, I find this ironic because it doesn't have any power the power's gone after a few shots that's true yeah and he's given a yeah. sort of chapter over it do you, do you think so could i ask you both i mean what I found puzzling all the way through, I mean, Mike, you said this is the classic definition of a slow burner. I agree with you. Alex, you said as well, it doesn't seem to get going to like chapter eight. No. 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 And that's what I felt is, what is this story? What What is the actual story? Tell me what you think the story is. That was my main problem because it's got so many different angles going on it. I couldn't actually pin down what the main point of the story was, you know, you've got this, the actual people who live on Frontos, you've got the Doctor, you've got the monsters, and there didn't seem to be any sort of putting it all together to the very last minute. Well, I think... That's true. I mean, there's a lot of yeah. what we call fluffers now. There's a lot of time yeah. where not a lot is going on, really. Yeah. <laughs> no, not Possibly the first eight or nine chapters. And... Yeah. So what did you think the story is, Mike? Oh, that's a tough yeah. question. Yeah. It's a good way to while away for your hours, I thought. Yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, like definitely. <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's sort of, uh, is it, you know, is it just Chris Bidme's writing? Is it the fact this isn't the most exciting TARDIS team? You know, you have Turlow, you have Tegan. Yeah. Peter Davison was seen as, like, very serious after, you know, anybody would be after the manicness of Tom Baker. But Well, looking at... Is it, is, is it me, or is Turlow just a bit of a non-entity in this book? Yeah. Pretty much. I mean, the mis- yeah. had the mystery gone by the time, you know... The Black Guardian issue was solved in the series. Had the mystery gone from him? I think so. Yeah. I mean, there's a little yeah. bit about the Tractators. Did they destroy his homeworld in this? I mean, there's a little bit of background there, isn't there? Yeah. No, it's it's not that... made entirely clear what exactly happened. 
That's a little bit thrown in, though, isn't it? From yeah. So, you know, that, none of that had ever been mentioned before. And it's completely different to the backstory, which we had previously, isn't it? When it was re- revealed who Turlow was and yeah. uh, and so forth. I mean, wh- where's this come from? This is, a, this is a bizarre... To echo what both of you feel about the being a slow burn and not start until chapter 8, that there's no story here. And when you actually get it down, if I were to say what is the story of Frontios... It seems to me that it's simply some creatures went into, I don't know, turn a planet into a spaceship. We've seen that before in Doctor Who, haven't we? Dalek Invasion of Earth. Um, yeah. And guide it round to colonise other. Is that evil? Is that dreadful? Is that awful? Is that, is that universe-threatening? I don't... I don't What's the difference between that and, and a colony of ants? Yeah, you might be sort of doing the, the residents a favour, seeing how boring some of them are, really. <laughs> <laughs> no, I have got one positive thing, which wow. is... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> wow, okay, what's the positive thing, then? Well, when I read the part about... He said about the, the polished walls are being made... You know when they're making the cave system yeah. and the walls yeah. have to be polished? And he said it was to boost the gravity waves... And I immediately thought, I didn't th- think that gravity went in waves. I thought it was a static force. So I went on the internet and duly found some very difficult scientific <laughs> papers. And, and fair play to bid me, he knows his stuff. <laughs> you know. So I thought, well, he succeeded here because he got me looking at it and educated myself to find out a bit more about gravity so that's yeah, well, when we know how many doctor who fans have become you know scientists yeah have become yeah quite a few mathematicians because of their love for the show yeah so he got me doing that so uh he succeeded in one objective i think i mean well let me ask first um what did you think of the reveal of the excavator machine well, it's not the greatest reveal, I have to admit. I, I found it more of a reveal when you saw it was the the captain from the old space who I thought that was quite good. That and like yeah. you, know, I'm I'm struggling to find good bits in this, but I I think that was quite a good being. You know, person was part of the machine. I thought that was quite good. Yeah, that's interesting because there are a mix of ideas in in here. I thought which what does come across in in the book is. Bibney's enthusiasm for his ideas. He really does come across as being fascinated and enthusiastic. Yes. And I do like that. I, I do wanna, like that. I want to talk about that enthusiasm with the uh, the audiobook. When we get oh, onto that a little right. bit later. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Because it certainly does come across in his writing. You can tell he loves what he's what he's what he's writing about. But that that the excavator machine as soon as I, I read that, I just thought, I granted Alex a fascinating idea of human mind power in it, yes. But human hands and parts which are rotten, polishing rock caves, I, oh, that's just the most ridiculous thing you've ever heard. I know, it's just, it just wouldn't happen. It's quite gory, no. really. Yeah. <laughs> ah, no, that's what I thought. You mentioned earlier, Mike, didn't you? You said... Body horror. Well, yeah, I was thinking that on a minute because it's all that bit of like you know the the, the earth the sinking the bodies into the earth and sucking them in. I thought yeah. he's just got all the contents of body horror. And thought, well, we need to put that in for shock value. I thought. Which I, I did think they were good. I thought they were quite good the way yeah. the bodies sort of were sucked into the earth. But I can see definitely where you're coming from. He's got um, a great line in there, and um, when he says, uh, 
as if Frontios buries its own dead. Yes, that is yeah. very that, memorable. That, now that memory. that's lovely. That's 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 some good real image grabbing horror writing. Is that I, I I like that. Can I uh, just speak a little bit about the characterization? I mean, um, I'm taking in mind now. We I've discussed with you a little while. I'm taking in mind of what we thought of the tenth planet was, which was. We didn't really care about most of the peripheral characters. Ooh, Tenth Planet. This is, um... <laughs> this, I think this could be extended to this story, to be honest with you. We've spoken about the representation of females before. I mean, you have a strong female in, is it Norna? Yeah. Norna yeah, I, I, that was what I was going to get onto. I, I do think that is the one good thing about this book. The females are really strong and independent. And they are pretty much in control, aren't they? They are. They are, yeah. She, she's a good character, Norna, and she was a good character in the TV version yes. as well, wasn't she? And then, fortunately, you have Tegan, who is basically... Oh. oh, I don't know. It's Tegan, I mean... I loved her when I was a child growing up, and the way she's written, and when I've gone back to watch stories as an adult, I'm, I'm not impressed, you know? You can understand why Janet Fielding left. She's, yeah. she's portrayed as just basically whining a lot of the time she is she moans and moans and moans and she it's 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 like why are you there just go you know i know the context of the story they dropped her off once and she came back she came back i know it's the like, very next series the next story you be moaning. no it's just you just wonder why she's there because he, that is what she's doing she's just moaning continuously yeah and it goes against the very ethos of of Doctor Who really isn't it which is about want, wanted to see the wonder of the universe travelling seeing all these things because, and what does she want where does she want to go Heathrow Airport I mean in a way I've been re-watching um, re-watching the series you know from the last 10 years and I've got to series 4 and you have that cynicism with Donna to an extent Catherine Tate but she does it so dryly and sarcastically oh. Yeah. You accept it, whereas it is an out-and-out moan with Tegan. It seems to be a genuine opinion I, I, is just for goodness sake. Like, what the Tegan hell am I doing here? a bit wearing after a while. Yeah, yeah, that, that's right. I, I think yeah. I, I think that is the problem. I'm going to say this. I think that has gone when she came back for big finishes stuff, but it is slowly coming back with her performance. I reckon. Is that in the big finish range, Amalek? Yeah, in the big finish range with the we brought her back with oh. Peter Davison. Yeah, can I just sort of make a. Making a side now about um, going back to Turlo. I mean, Bidme describes at one point that there's a Turlo light. Uh, Turlo is holding a torch, I think. Oh, yeah. He describes it as the Turlo light. Yeah. yeah. And it humorously, it got me thinking about how the fact Turlo has very ginger hair and perhaps the light was actually beaming off the top of his head. But, um, oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I can imagine the Doctor carrying Turlo around and using him as a torch. Yeah, that's very weird. What I did like something that Bidmead was doing uh, in in the novelization, fascinated by language and so forth, and I loved the way that he was he was pinching from Charles Dickens, which is absolutely yes. great, with the characters' names that all their all their names described their personalities or or what they do. Did you notice that? Definitely, yes. But what, Definitely, yeah, they are they're great. The names, I do like the names. Yeah, they? yeah, I I really like them. But this interesting thing is. You've both picked up on how much better a female character is portrayed. And yet, if you look at the the male names, Captain Revere, because he's revered by everyone, this mystical yeah. brazen, the soldier, the authority figure who just goes straight in there. Cockerel, who's, he is like a prancing cockerel, isn't he, you know, and he's got <laughs> yeah. a Plantagenet, you know, a, a royal dynasty, the head of the royal dynasty. And then for the female character, 
Nona. Nona. What's Nona? What's that? <laughs> who is who? Who turns out to be probably the strongest supporting character there? Yeah, is. yeah. Oh, definitely, definitely. Why did, yeah, why didn't he give her a really good, <laughs> excellent name so that she stands out as well? He's done everything else and made her, you know, a really good, strong character. He's given it a daft, dull name, like she's out to some northern soap opera. Well, oh. Maybe that that was the point at the time, you know, because of the joys of not being the greatest of feminists in that time of TV now. It's maybe, like, downtroddling the female again, unfortunately. Well, I think she does come yeah. over as the best character. She does, yeah. Yeah, she she does, I think, yeah. Um, pretty, pretty much not much to add about the naming of the characters, which you both just said. It goes... Too many different ways, but I, I did like the sort. It's of... hard to, to keep and it's hard to keep concentrating on the narrative, isn't it? It does, it does flit about a lot. It's a lot of things. Go, you have to sit there. I nearly did sit there and my uh, sort of tablet hand write notes because it's like, yes, it's I know, what's going just, on now. It's, it's like... almost got that examination feel to it when you're listening to it. You should be taking. It's just a really important school lesson. You should be taking <laughs> notes on it. It's I... like you know, you start off with. A, I think the problem is you start off with a really good concept of this sort of planet on a sort of nuclear war and what's happening to it. And, you know, you could get involved with the characters then and it sort of goes off on the normal sort of Doctor Who tangent as well, we must have monsters. I might be more impressed with it if he'd stripped it back and just kept with the actual people of Frontos. And it could what's... be more simplistic, I think so. Um, before we go on to the audio audiobook version, something which probably... Might not go down well with Greg here, being such a big fan of Terence Dix's use of the phrase, but um, I don't know if he's mentioned it as well, but um, Terence Dix is credited, rightly so, because he created it, with the sound of the TARDIS being a wheezing, groaning sound. But on page 142, uh, Mr. Bidme takes that in a different way and describes it as a whirring, chuffing sound. And it really, it really isn't the same, is it? It doesn't, no. it doesn't work. Sorry, Chris, no, it doesn't no. work. I, I did notice that, too. I thought, what? Yes, I'm so... I... Yeah, I'm so glad you pointed that out. If I can yeah. sum up this book in one word, I don't know if I should leave it to the end of the audiobook version. Yeah, should we talk about the audiobook version first? I've got a word which I think can describe this book. But should we uh, have your thoughts first, Alex, on the... Or do you want to go first, Greg? No, um, no Alex, on first the... on the audiobook version and how Chris Bidmead uh, reads it. Well, this is when I'm going to... I think the problem with Chris Bidmead is that he can't do voices, but he can do a very good Tegan voice. So you weren't getting the greatest intonation on different characters and Tegan actually comes out quite well his book is quite good when he's reads it so it was all in the middle for me now that's that's interesting because I thought he could do a good Australian accent but I don't think it was Tegan I think it was a guy I don't know it's a... we did that so we had it on in the car we went to a convention last weekend and we we had it on the car on the way back and I mentioned Dame Edna Average <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's that's what we thought. Um, I will say the, the the big one with me, which I found, apart from, I will say he sounded quite nervous at first when he started reading it. He came across as a little nervous and tentative, and I thought he got better and better as it went through. He certainly gave a stronger performance as he went through, but overall it was very dull reading and i i laughed when um uh, alex mentioned about um you know about being in the, was it the school teachers uh do you mention that sorry yeah, i mentioned sorry, the school like, lesson sorry. yeah i mentioned the school lesson yeah sorry i'll say I, I was just, I couldn't, you couldn't do it as a full thing. So I was doing it in chunk. It just wasn't easy listening. It was sort of a struggle, to be honest. Oh, because you ha you couldn't do it as a full listen. Like, I normally listen to things in like one go. And you had to sit there and go through it bit by bit, really. And could I repeat what I said as well? Because I did, I got it wrong way around as well. 
I really liked when Mike said as well about it being the school teacher uh, type of scenario because actually I've got in my notes as well. I have to say that Christopher H. Bidmead actually sent me back in time when he was reading this audiobook because I felt as though I were in a 1970s secondary modern school classroom bored. Yeah, can I just say, uh, give my thoughts on the audio version? I mean, I Go used ahead. the phrase Pythonesque earlier on. I think it is, what put me in mind of it was his reading, because he does develop an enthusiasm as he's going through the book. And there's certain points when he's doing, you know, the alien voices, and it is incredibly over the top. That oh. is that is the Pythonesque part for me. Oh. It's up there with Tom Baker, you know, he obviously hasn't got the trained intonation and actor mannerisms of Tom, which Tom mm. put into, say, Pyramids of Mars last month, even though this isn't, oh, a, yeah. isn't a comparison. Yeah, it just almost insane glee he puts into these alien voices and I did love that and that sort of uh, he did that, that sort of helped me enjoy it I think he, he does build up he realises the tension builds up towards the end and he does sort of ramp it up he did put some insane glee into into the Gravis voice at parts didn't he Definitely you know, he, he did voice, do that yeah. but what I found I felt that the, he seemed to be doing a 10th planet Cyberman voice <laughs> you right, just got true. there before me, there, Greg. I was just about to say that it's very sing-songy. Yeah, absolute sing-song. Yeah, exactly. Yes, like it a... is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and what I find is because it, the the syllables are broken down so slowly, it just sucks the drama out of it. It's it's almost like frontios. Yes, know, you can get to a point where it is a very intense moment, and the the story is ramping up its pace, and then it yeah. slows down. Exactly, Mike, exactly. And that's the problem. Just as he's getting good with that, yeah. it's like Frontios himself is sucking the life yeah. out of his story yeah. because he's using Totally. That. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a couple of th- other things with the language. For Considering that uh, Bidmead is so mathematical and scientific and precise and wants to use language so carefully, he makes some really big blunders in it. The part where the Doctor's looking for his glasses as a as a diversionary tactic. And when he finds them, and he puts in the line afterwards, the eyes have it. And I just thought, what's he talking about? What on <laughs> earth is he talking about? Well, what's that got to do with the... It's just bizarre. With glasses, it's like... Yeah. It's what's weird. It gonna... Yeah. What's it got to do with... I... It's it... sort of an aside that might go down well in a pub or not go down well in a pub, but not necessarily yeah. on the page. Yeah. I see what you mean. It's very twee, sort of. Yeah, just just don't get it. Very um, twee line. Yeah. Also, we get to the, the climax of it. Bidmead is going full out. He's doing, as Mike said, these really uh, sort of, um, you know, great alien voices and getting really into it. But the actual story, what does it come down to? It says, for example, when the, the TARDIS had been destroyed, when it gives the explanation, the reason it was destroyed was because the Gravis miscalculated its gravity pull due to the complex time-space-mass of the TARDIS. It was actually an accident. Is that it? I thought it was a bit of complete, you know, a nice sort of build it up with the TARDIS being maybe blown up or something, and then yeah. the, the answer is stupid. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it gets, becomes so intense slowly towards the end again, and then you sort of, you look, I mean, I got the paper back as well here, and you get there and you realise there's maybe two pages left, and you think how on earth, yeah. how on earth is this going to wrap itself up? Yeah. I mean, realising that Doctor Who is a TV, as a TV show is something that does wrap up quickly, especially in the new series format, but um, yeah, it yeah. does. It doesn't give you the payoff, does it? The the build no, up. No, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. The, the the story that that's why I asked right to the beginning. What did you guys think of the story? Because for me, it's just I I've got down here what a boring load of old twaddle. 
Um, but that, that, <laughs> that, that's just what I felt. I, I, th- I think he, well, you know, he comes across as a, as a thoroughly nice guy, and yeah. I think he would take it in the spirit. Now, of course, we always discuss the covers of the Target novelizations, and uh, this one is uh, very interesting. I think we we're all agreed on what we think of it. Um, Mike, pink and blue sort of blended nice, almost almost towards red, isn't it? In the middle, yeah, in yeah. front of the planet Frontios, you know, and you've got the prominent antlers of the. Um, the, the tractator, tractator yeah, yeah, yeah. You've got this here, and like I say, I like. I thought they were quite scary um, when I first saw them. But as as you said, um, I mean, it's a cut above most eighties covers because we yeah. discussed before the the nineteen eighties covers don't don't really stand out. No, and, and this is no, a they, went, piece they of went quite moderate, didn't they? They went quite sort of limited, didn't they? The covers that's in nineteen eighties. I think out of that period, yes, because it just as the problem is, I think with. Um, Casper and Odo, that's all over the place as well. Legopolis is definitely my favourite. But I think this one is sort of... The problem is that the plot is too weak. It's sort of all over the place. Yeah, yeah, that, that's what I feel as well. But I think what I think what we've all picked up on is it's got some great images in there and ideas. You know, like I think you said, Alex, about the opening scenes. We've got a world under, you know, under siege. We've got these meteorite showers. We've got the... Ursa. There's lots of great ingredients there, but they just don't hang together in a, in a sensible story, do they? No, they, they just they, go. They don't. That's the problem. And I, I think that yeah. in the beginning, tellers are some great sort of action scenes between um, Turlo and Tegan, and they work really well on the page. But then they sort of come a bit lackluster because nothing happens with them. Yeah, can I just add, Alex? It, it is Andrew Skilleter becoming a big uh, fan of his work already. He actually, um, Cameron. Kay McEwen from Blog to Who, who we had an interview with on the last podcast, uh, recently re- recently released two books, one of which is full of Andrew Skilleter's illustrations, which you know could have could have been sort of target novelizations if they continued into the new series. They're superb work, and um, yeah, I was a big fan of that one as well, Greg. That Frontios cover, yeah, it certainly stands out from the eighties ones, and it's oh, it's it's way above yes. the the other eighties yeah. ones with the, with the dreadful. And it's a fabulous design. I mean, it's a, I think that elevates even from the television that. That drawing elevates the design of the um, tractator. Yes, I'm trying to think of the right word of it. What what are, what are those things called above? Are they antlers they stick... or antlers or? No, they stick above their heads. What are, are they, they, oh, they uh, described in the book? Antenna, antenna, that's that's it, that's antenna. Oh, you're nearly antenna. Nearly anti, anti. Yes, anti. Yeah, can I just um, just sum up for me this book? The one word I was thinking of before is pompous. Oh, it's it's down there, but in a good way. Is it possible for something to be pompous if it's self-aware? Because I think he is self-aware that Christopher H. Bidmead is self-aware that his use of language is perhaps, you know, not the common everyday understanding that we have. You know, it's a very sort of academically based, scientifically based, mathematically based. I think there is an awareness of that. You know, I did, I did enjoy the book. That's what I'll say. But I would say pompous in one word. But in a good way. I- <laughs> yeah, because I, I, I like the that. whole sort of I like the I like pomposity in life now and again. You know, it's it's, it's, a, it's a good thing. <laughs> what do you do? You think if you're more scientifically and mathematically minded, you would have got more out of this? Definitely, I agree with that, Alex. Definitely. And you, Alex? Okay, so, so. I, I, I was just saying there. Well, I think it is definitely it is a very dry book, but it's got good things about it. But it needed a bit of a an edit, or you know. And I, when he had all these ideas, sort of what's going to happen here and here and there. Yeah. And maybe, you know, getting to... That's the problem. We've had Terence Dick's books where they are 
though you know it could be a bit long-winded they they are so planned out and you can see where things are with this it was sort of a bit all over the place and took too long to get to the point you said is this the weakest of the bimmy stories for you now i haven't read the other two novels i've seen obviously the Coppolis and castro valva but based on a tv basis only this is the best story for me because it moves away from that yeah complete reliance on mathematical theory yeah you know this that's why i enjoyed it as a child and why i enjoyed it now reading it as an adult I think because I don't know if he had a better script editor or writer, it basically made him look at it and be a bit more tight. I think he's fleshed this book out just for the sake of it, isn't he? Really, I mean, this is a, was a four four part story on television. Yeah, yeah. It just doesn't need to be. I mean, how many does he have more than the average ten six pages? He actually he has does. less, but it seems like about two hundred pages to me. Yeah, when you read through it. Well, it's actually 143. 143 standard yeah. 125, isn't it? Yeah. So, he's so got a good few extra. So it is a bit bigger. Extra, yeah. yeah. And and the text is, is smaller. I think I think it is it is a bigger bigger book. I was just wondering. I wonder if you took those. You know, if you actually kept it to the normal target page, I mean, would it have been better? Quite possibly. I think mm. I don't know what you know which bits you could strim in there. Really, I mean, because there's so much to remember. It's hard to specify certain parts which you could strip back on. That's my whole point of it. Up, as we said, a slow burner. I think it struck me listening to when he read the the last chapter of the novelization. Right, it it struck me when he reads the last line or paragraph of the book as well that the the people of Frontiers can now look forward to a more hopeful fate. And I just thought, for somebody who's so precise with his words, he's used an oxymoron there. A hopeful fate. It's one or the other. Either they're going to be, either they're fated to have something. How can they be? How can they have a hopeful fate? And and I just thought, as you were both pointing out, a good editor would have been sort of poking him through all of this and saying, "That's got to go. Change that. Tighten this up. That's nonsense." And then we would have ended up with a good story. I thought. I mean, yeah, I can see what he's tried to do there. He tried to sort of. Put an element of doubt in the reader's head, isn't he? As to this planet isn't going to be wonderful afterwards. Everything isn't going to be yeah. running smoothly. Like, yeah. So it's a very curious, yeah, curious way to word it. I I, I thought so, and I, I found his language was full of of things like that. Mike and I were on our way to Doctor Who Cares Two convention in Windsor, and we thought we'll treat ourselves to listening to the audio book by Christopher H. Midmead. We've been on the motorway for a few hours. It was getting intense. Bidmead was picking up in the story and he was getting pretty good. And we were on this section. They descended into the tunnels underneath Frontios and Bidmead was saying this. He disappeared into the tunnel and the darkness closed in around the cave like a black gloved fist. Hey, wait for me. Nona called out and ran after him. The faint glow of the receding lamp seemed to strike life into the silver spheres. But it was more than the appearance of movement. These shifting shards of light on the exotic markings. Slowly, one of the spheres began to unroll. With the gate of a huge silver woodlouse, it started to move. Following the firefly of the phosphor lamp that flitted away down the tunnel. F, too many Fs there, too many F and Fs. How many Fs can you fit into one <laughs> sentence? It just ruined the whole thing. We burst out lot. Well, I, I burst out yes. lot. Oh, I'm not surprised. I, I think I did as well. It's just ridiculous. Yeah, that's that. I just, he also it seemed to become Norman Wisdom for a minute when he read it. Out. And it, <laughs> instant, it instantly rips all the tension of that first bit. 
out of it. Very true. Uh, that, that, absolutely, Alex. Absolutely. And it was like I don't know. It, it was like he got to that stage and thought, "I need to put the dinner on." And yeah, this needs <laughs> yeah. to be one final, one, yeah. one final sentence. So yeah. <laughs> so I mean, as for scores, uh, well, I have to say, I mean, we've got a bit of a varied range of opinions here, haven't we? Really. Who wants to go first with the scores, Greg? Right, I'll come for it. I, I, I hate to be so critical, but this is my... And I will say I loved the TV version. Thrilled as a child to watch it. Thought it was a classic. I don't think so now. But this novelisation, I'm sorry, isn't the weakest one we reviewed so far. And I'm giving it 3 out of 10. Ooh. Alex? Well, well, I'm so glad Greg has actually given it a 3, because I've been sort of deliberating for the last three or four days going can I really give it a John Pertwee because that's what I started with and thought should I be a bit more generous and give it like a, a six or a seven thinking like to be a bit more generous but I think I'm going to go back to what I originally thought and go with a three as well Ooh. three out of ten oh this is, this is a big one for me because I did enjoy it you loved it mate didn't you possibly because it's so different you know you'd say differently mm, I, but I can't be swayed by you two see I've got to be no. got to be your own no, person on this podcast absolutely so I've tried. I've tried to defend it in places. Forgive me, Mister Bidmead. You've succeeded. <laughs> you've succeeded in places, mate. Yeah, places. Yeah, yeah. to me. I mean, the gold bar was set by pyramids of Mars reaching the ten. Yes. Anything that followed that was going to struggle, big t- especially when it's on TV. Certainly, it's a less popular Doctor in Davison. You know, it's a less popular Tardis team than the Doctor and Sarah Jane. But I am comparing now. But for me, it's going to be an eight, guys. Oh. I'm sticking to an eight because. I just, oh, you had I your just did enjoy you it, probably because of the slow burn, you know. I, don't, I honestly don't see how you've scored it so low, both of you. You know, that's, that's just my opinion. Well, that, It well, does that's... just, like, hold your interest. You've made valid points about not some of the use of language and, you know, not holding your attention in one great chunk of listening to it. But I've... for me, it does just ramp up towards the end, and that's what I do like in a story. I've mentioned the word pompous, but yeah. I see it it's sort of authoritarian in a good way. It, it's... I don't think it does take itself too seriously, so I'm gonna I'm gonna give it an eight. Well, it's, I understand the reason for your marble. The reason I think we gave it so low is every time the tension got ramped up, it just got stamped on. Yes, yeah, good yeah. point. I felt, I, I, I felt for me as well. It, it's just, I mean, in a way, you could say that I'm I'm being unfair because lo- lots of times Doctor Who stories have got silly plots yeah i mean i mentioned the the dalek invasion of earth which i absolutely adore i mean it's got it's got the same thing um alex you recognize as well wasn't it where they just want to pilot the earth around the universe very yeah it? i mean some a lot of doctor stories are very grand in concept greg and yeah yeah execution towards the end they just seem a little bit hurried and they think yeah you know have, yeah, have well, all this always been... started with the end point till they just i was saying well, you know i agree with how you know the, the idea can sometimes get a bit sort of tangled and sort of not have enough time we've seen that in sort of episodes like cold war in the last couple of years you know where Mm. i just think this one doesn't work because even with some things the tension's there and you get the outcome or this it was tension tension and no we're not going to have it it's stamped on it's sort of done away with and that's what really annoyed me yeah yeah so certainly an interesting podcast this week quite a few polarizing views between the team members on frontios by christopher h bidmeet As you may have noticed, our podcast title has had a change. We've added the word of the great man, Doctor himself, to make it Doctor Who on target. We also have a new introduction recorded very kindly by Mr. John Leeson, 
who played the voice of K-9 in Doctor Who and the Sarah Jane Adventures stretching back to the 1970s. Thank you very much to John for recording that for us. We would love to get some feedback from you at our Twitter account, the old title, at Who's on Target. Search Facebook for Doctor Who on Target and the WordPress page, Doctor Who on Target. Thank you very much for listening. Next time on Doctor Who on Target, we are reviewing the sixth Doctor adventure, Doctor Who Vengeance on Varos, written by Philip Martin, along with the audio version read by Colin Baker. Who on Target Podcast 6 featured Greg James, Michael Winks, and Alexander Gibbons, who appeared via video call. Music by Delia Derbyshire, Ron Grainer. Arrangement by YouTube user Andy Keys Music. Fifth Doctor impersonation performed by Mr. Jonathan Carley. Check out his YouTube channel, Doctor Tripod. Doctor Who on Target Podcast 6 was recorded in Swansea, South Wales, during June 2015.